You can be seated. As the kids get ready to go to their class, parents this morning, they're going to be learning about peace. So we're going through the fruits of the Spirit, and so we want you to uh, think about peace. And kids, I want you to, uh, don't raise your hand and answer publicly, but how many of you get afraid at night or ever been afraid of the dark? I've been afraid of the dark. And one of the things that can help you when you're afraid of the dark, sometimes you can go get your daddy, and he'll come in, and he'll just kind of look under the bed and say, well, there's nothing to be afraid of. And that's kind of a little bit helpful. Or sometimes daddy will actually sit there and he'll wait with you. And that's a little more helpful. But could you imagine what it would be like if your daddy said, I would love to sit here and be with you, but I have to go to bed because I have to go to work in the morning. So what I've done is I've hired Guido. So let me introduce you to Guido. And he's six foot five, 300 pound ninja who's going to stand outside your door and nobody or nothing comes in or out without Guido's permission. Now, you might actually sleep pretty well. You could sleep well because you have somebody outside who's going to protect you. And the peace that you're going to learn about, the peace of the Lord is not the absence of something. It's not don't be afraid because there's nothing there to worry about. The peace of the Lord is his powerful presence to be with you and never to leave you. So kids, as you get up and make your way out, something already made your way out, the ones who are uh, headed out with their teacher, uh, you can go with your teacher and go to your class. And parents, that's what we'll be talking about this morning, the peace of the Lord and its power to protect them. So as they make their way, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1. And for several months, we're going to be walking through the book of Ephesians because Ephesians um, is this wonderful book that Paul's going to establish what it means to be a new society, a new people, a new community redeemed and renewed and restored by the Lord. So what we're going to look at this morning is verses 7 through 13. So as you find your way to the book of Ephesians... Uh, and one of the things, one of the things Paul's doing, and it's really interesting because um, he's almost in, in chapter one. It's it's a unique chapter. It's unique in all of ancient literature because the whole chapter, starting from verse three all the way to end, is just two sentences, two long, extraordinary sentences. They're two of the longest sentences in all of ancient literature, and all there at one is one long sentence of praise, and then the other is one long sentence of prayer, praise and prayer. And those are the two elements and aspects of what it means to have a healthy soul. You have a soul that prays and, and, and praises and prays. And um, the first sentence, 13, verse, verse 3 through 14, is one long explosion of praise. And what's fascinating is what Paul is like. He's almost like this. Have you ever been around a little child who's just like after Christmas or birthday and like you come to visit them and they just go get every single toy they own and just kind of dump it at your feet and uh, just run back and forth and put toy after toy after toy. And you're almost like overwhelmed with this teddy bear tidal wave because they're giving you every toy they got. And that's kind of what Paul's doing here. He's taking all these gifts and for um, 13 verses, he's just stacking them up. Here's what you have. You have been blessed blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Here they are. Look, 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 look. And he wants us just to pause and, and encounter these gifts and these blessings that are ours in Christ. And one of the, the, the tragedies is we have all of these riches and blessings there for us. And one of the great tragedies and challenges just of the Christian life is to actualize them to realize them, to open them up, and to experience them for all that they really are. A couple of weeks ago, we, uh, we took the kids to Aquatica, and um, while we were in Aquatica Hour 2, so it uh, actually, there was like this platform, 
five-year-old likes to go head first into water. But what he found is in this little kid area, there was like this platform with all, <coughs> with all these water cannons. And uh, there was four like tile steps leading up to the platform and then the platform. And uh, he got fixated on the steps. So we spent almost an entire hour of twaddling up three steps, turning around, plunking down, and then boom, boom, boom. And then giggle, and then turn around, twaddle up, and then boom, boom, boom. And then it's not even a slide. It's not a designed ride by the engineers. And so they're looking at, I didn't mind because he was contained, and, but thinking like, you're at a world-class water park, and you're just boom, boom, boom on the steps. That's it. We didn't need to come. We could go to any neighborhood pool, and we could get some boom, boom, boom. We could do this in our house. I could turn the hose on on our porch. And as I'm sitting there watching... I think, man, this is, like, it's kind of funny for a two-year-old, but it would be sad if that was a 10-year-old. Like, if we had a 12-year-old that was just doing that, I'd be kind of upset as dad. It's like, do you know how much it costs to get you in here just to boom, boom, boom on the steps? And uh, in our spiritual life, what Paul doesn't want you to be is to be a a 12-year-old spiritually where you're not actually experiencing all that's around you and experiencing the grace that is on offer to you. And he says, look, these are riches that are yours. Experience them. Don't settle for less. He wants you to experience more than what... Uh, there's so much more to be had than often what we, what we settle for. So just think in your spiritual life, are you satisfied with just playing on the steps? Or do you want to experience more? And what I want to look here this morning is three of the gifts that, uh, three more of the gifts that come out in this passage. It's important to kind of see, so we look at this structure, the way it works. There's kind of a, there's a Trinitarian structure where you have God the Father who's going to lavish these gifts on us. God the Son who accomplishes all of these gifts or purchases them for us. And then God the Spirit who establishes them in us. It's the Holy Spirit's job, and that's who we're going to look at this morning, the Holy Spirit. It's his job to make all of these gifts, all of these treasures real in our life, to help us to feel them and experience them. In one sense, you think about the Holy Spirit. He's kind of the shy member of the Trinity who likes to hang out in the background. Christ purchased all of these gifts for us, and it's the Holy Spirit who's going to apply it and make them actual in our life, make them real so we can experience them. So I got three here I want you to think about as we look at this passage. Uh, the gift of revelation, the gift of participation, and the gift of possession. So let's think first about the gift of re- revelation. Let's start in verse 7, and then we'll go to the end and then key in on a couple lines. <clears throat> in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. So let's pause there, and let's think about those first two, the gift of revelation and the gift of participation. One of the challenges in this passage is it's so pregnant, so dense with meaning. It's like every word is... When he talks about making known to us in verse 9... The mystery of his will. This mystery. The mystery in the biblical New Testament sense is not mystery like, oh, we need Sherlock Holmes to unravel this mystery. It's something that was hidden and now has been revealed. It's something that we didn't know but now can know. Um, we, what was hidden was how God was going to fix the earth, and then now we know his plan to redeem it and restore it. 
So one of the lines we use here over and over is this is God's good world, and it's ruined by sin. And what was not known is how he was going to fix how sin has ruined the world. But now what we know is it's fixed because it's redeemed by the Son and being recreated by the Holy Spirit. So it's how he's going to renew and restore all things. And then look in verse 10. It's that he has this plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. So he's got this plan that he's uh, executing. This word comes from the, the Greek where we get uh, our economics. Oikos is house, and then nomos, nomics, working, how it works, economics. It's the way um, an administration, the way a household manages, functions. It says this earth is kind of like God's household that he's, he's operating. He's, he's running. He's the superintendent. And the, and the purpose is to unite all things under him. But let's first think about that idea of revelation. He's made known to us. He's made known to us these things. Have you ever thought just what a gift it is that the Lord has made things known to us? He hasn't left us to fumble around in the dark. He hasn't left us to wonder or question or worry. He's made certain things known to us. By his spirit, he's revealed the mystery of his will, what he's doing in the world. It's like in John 16 where Jesus talks about how um, I now call you friends because a master will keep uh, things from a ser- servant, but I've told you what I'm doing because we're friends. He's made known to us. But what's being made known is his plan to renew and restore all things, it's to bring about redemption, to bring about restoration. And then notice how it comes in verse 7 and 8. It's lavished on us with all wisdom and insight. So he's made known to us these things, but it comes by being wise. Wisdom. You know, wisdom in the Bible is one of the supreme gifts. It is supreme because it makes you wise. And he says it's his wisdom that's going to bring about the restoration of all things. But part of the shocker is it comes by way of the cross. It's the cross that becomes the wisdom of the Lord to bring the restoration. And I've been reading through in my own Bible reading through Job, and I'm so haunted because if I read Job's friends, the comforters, so much of what they say on the surface sounds so right. But then the Lord at the very end condemns them because he says, they have not spoken rightly about me because they don't have the categories for the wisdom of the cross that an innocent person can suffer. And it's the wisdom of the cross that's going to um, transform them. But he says this is it's the cross that's going to reunite and restore all things. And this has been made known to us. And it's worth thinking about. One of the gifts that the Lord has given us is that in his word, he's given us everything we need for his work. Whatever the Lord wants you to do, you have the resources in his word to accomplish. All our key, core, fundamental accomplishes work is found in his word. Words create for the first time a love for need the Lord, the Spirit, to help revive in me or create for the first time a love for His Word. You know, one of the great places to go is Psalm 119, where it's a whole, uh, it's the longest chapter in the Bible, and it's all about how to develop a love for the Word. And you can read through it, and one of the things you can ask as you read through it, it tells you certain things that tells you who God is. And you can read through it as, who is he? What has he said? He's established the earth. His law is perfect. It's pure. It stands forever. But then notice as you're reading through it how it's just filled with all of these things about who we are and what we need. 
It says, before I was afflicted, I went astray. I'm afflicted. I'm accused. I feel accursed. I'm a young man who needs to figure out how to keep his way pure. I feel I've been hurt. I'm angry. I'm all of these things. And then it's the word that comes in to shape and to heal and direct and to counsel. And then you hear all throughout Psalm 119, here's what I need you to do. I need you to teach me. I need you to make me. I need you to shape me. I need you to help me. And then the word then becomes like a treasure. It says your word then becomes two things, two images. It's sweeter than honey, and then it's more valuable than silver. So it's not just valuable, it's sweet. And it's not just sweet, it's valuable and precious. And it comes to us like that. And one of the things, if you have the word that comes to you and comes to life like that, do you realize what kind of treasure you have? Realize how rich you are. You know, one of my, John Bunyan, who wrote uh, The Pilgrim's Progress, he was a Baptist pastor, 1600s-ish, wrote one of the most famous books in the English language, Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, England at the time, an uh, act of uh, nonconformity, all Protestant, Protestant ministers, if you stood up and did this, you had a Protestant worship gathering. The pastor was thrown into prison. He was thrown into prison for about 12 years, had four kids at home. One of them was blind, put terrible um, stress on his family, and talked about how did he make it. And uh, he has a line where he says, um, I tell thee, friend, the Lord hath allowed me to lay hold of some of his precious promises that I would not have out of the Bible for all of the gold and silver that could lie between London and York piled to the stars. And so do you have promises like that? He's saying during the season of darkness, there were promises in the word that became so powerful to me. I would not have out of the Bible for all of the gold between London and York piled to the stars. And are there things like that that you can cling to that shape you? And if you have promises like that, do you know how rich you are? Are there truths from God's word that are so precious to you, you would not trade for all of the money from here to downtown piled to the stars? There's a lady in our church that I worked in in, in Georgia. It was the Richburg family and the sweet, wonderful, godly family. And uh, Mr. Richburg, Harry, he uh, was coming to retirement, and he had the opportunity to take this um, family kind of really wrestled because uh, loved being together, loved you know, loved one another, loved being together. He had this chance to take a job that was going to be about three hours away, so it meant he would have to be away from the family all week. And uh, but he only had to do it for three years. They kind of calculated the economic windfall from the job would be a three-year window. He could then retire, and then uh, him and Miss Richburg could, could travel around and, and uh, live well. And uh, so he took it, started taking it. Every time I'd see Miss Richburg at church, I'd just kind of smile. How's, uh, how's Harry doing? And, oh, good. They, she had this giant countdown on their wall. You know, it was like 982 days, Mark, you know, 742 days, Mark. And then it got down to, it was like three months until uh, he was going to be done. And uh, one, uh, it was Saturday night, Sunday morning. Uh, she got up, got ready for church, and he didn't wake up. And he had a massive heart attack at night and died in his sleep. And it shook. It shook me as a 20-year-old youth minister. shook our church. And I remember sitting with her trying to offer comfort but having no idea what to say or do. And the thing that she would repeat over and over, he's not against me. He's not against me. He's not against me. 
And right now, if you would go and ask Ms. Richburg, if, what would you trade if you could have the realities of Romans 8? Those realities that if God be for us, who can be against you? The realities that in him all things work together for those who are called according to his purpose. The reality that I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come. Nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. What would you trade? Would you trade all of the money from LaGrange, Georgia, to Atlanta, pile to the stars, if though to take those out of your life? And she'd say, no way. No way. And if you have promises like that, do you know how rich you are? And the Bible's filled with them. So one of our jobs is to get them, to grab hold to them when we don't need them so they're there when we do. It's one of the riches, the gift of revelation. But that's not the only gift here. Another gift is the gift of participation. He's saying you're going to be called into this grand work of renewing and restoring all things. Look what he says in verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan that the fullness of time he's going to unite all things in him. Now this is a really challenging phrase to to, to translate, because it means kind of unite all things in him, bring all things together, sum everything up, put everything underneath his feet. There's kind of two key images, that Christ is going to be the head, and everything is going to come under him, and then everything will then work in harmony. So it's kind of headship and harmony are the two ideas. And the idea is that the world and you were meant to, you were, you were meant to, you were made to be under the headship of Christ. But when we get out of line with that, our whole life goes out of joint. That misalignment brings brokenness in our life. This past week I was driving on the, the 408 and, uh, it had to be a man because only a man would drive like this. And so there was somebody who was in the ultimate driving machine. But I thought it was really interesting because I, I know BMWs don't, I'm assuming, I don't have one, I'm assuming they come with full-size spare tires. But this one didn't have a full-size spare tire. It had one of those like, now we used to have one of these in our Toyota Matrix, but it was like those little bitty black donut kind of tires. And it had one of those black donuts on the BMW. But evidently, someone didn't tell the driver that that, t- that tire was on his car because he was flying and weaving and cutting people off. And, you know, those little wheels can't sustain more than about 45 miles an hour. You try to push them at 60 or 70 and cutting in and out, uh, your, your, your car will fall out of alignment and you then become a danger to yourself and everyone around you. Something is going to get broken because you're, you're, you're working it in such a way where it wasn't meant to work. And the reality is that's the way life is. We were made to live under the headship of Christ, but once sin comes, it breaks that alignment. And now um, it's only a matter of time before the wreck comes. You know, I found out this week that my, my man over here, Ezra, loves spaceships, and one day he's going to fly some of you to Mars. So when he does, you will be in good hands. You will be in a, the hands of a good a pilot. But do him a favor when you get to Mars, don't take your helmet off. You know, because your lungs weren't made to breathe in carbon dioxide and ammonia or whatever else is in the atmosphere of Mars. Your lungs were designed to breathe in oxygen. And when you try to put other things in there, it goes bad for you. 
I remember, uh, well, you know, I grew up in Atlanta, so it's like Smog City. And I had some friends who went to Georgia Tech, and their joke was, uh, it's healthier to smoke a pack of cigarettes than it is to run three miles in Atlanta. It's healthier for your lungs. I don't know if that's true or not. So, but uh, I remember the first time I went to out west and went to Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and I got off the plane and started breathing in on I felt like there was like needles sticking me. I was like, what is that? I'm being attacked. I like have a virus. Something is attacking me. And then it dawned on me, I, th- I think that's oxygen. <laughs> it's like, is this what clean air like tastes like? Is this air? And it never experienced. And one of the things um, Paul's saying, like, God is pouring out, He's pouring out His grace on you. And then when you experience it for the first time, your soul will breathe it in and you come alive. And it happens about realigning with yourself underneath the headship of Christ. Because when sin came in, and you can see this in Genesis 3, there was four ending our relationship with ourself gets And it's God's grace, his redemption, that's going to get broken. And then our relationship with the world gets broken. And it's God's grace, his redemption, that's going to realign all of these things. And once they get realigned, then we can really live as we were meant to and designed for. And so just think about it in your life, all right, what needs to come under the headship of Christ? That's the only way to bring balance and flourishing. You know, maybe it's your parenting, relationships, work, finances. All of that is how it can, it can um, find thriving in those things. So I think we know we don't need people to convince us so often that our lives are out of balance, that they're out of joint. I think the problem is we don't really know where to look to fix them. We often think, man, if I can just set my priorities or set boundaries or become a, you know, a, a task ninja who's chopping off things on my to-do list with rapid speed, then I'll get balance. Well, that's not ultimately where it comes from. Ultimate soul balance comes from renewing and restoring our relationship with the Lord. You know, I'm thinking about Mary and Martha, the story in Luke, where the story is Jesus was coming to these uh, ladies' houses for dinner, and one was so busy and doing so many things, and then the other sister was just sitting at his feet. And then the one sister was, hey, don't you care? She's not helping me. And Jesus says, Martha, Mary has chosen the better thing, because one thing is needful. There's one thing. Ultimately, there's one thing that's needful. That's to sit at my feet. Jesus is the head, we sit at his feet, and that's where we find life. So that's the gift of participation, to come into and participate with him in how he's renewing and restoring all things. This actually is one of the major themes throughout the whole book, so we'll cycle back to it over and over. But the last thing I want you to think about is just the gift of possession. And you can see this here, look in verse 13, or starting 11, but maybe 13 and 14. It's in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you believed in him, and you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory." So there's two images here that Paul uses for the Holy Spirit's work in our life. He says he's a seal, and then he's a deposit or a guarantee. And the first thing, the seal, um, in the ancient world, uh, one way what seals, so anybody who was a noble person, anybody who had certain standing or status in community or resources or a family name, they'd have like a signet ring, some kind of family seal, and you'd put the seal on things, and it, uh, it, it marked it as uh, authentic. 
So if you received a letter for someone, you'd look for that seal to know it really came from them. It wasn't forgery. It's kind of how you put your signature on things now. Um, it also marked things as ownership. So you imagine, uh, like, in ancient culture, you would send somebody, you'd go, you know, didn't have a hardware store, but you'd go down to the market, and let's say you buy, bought this big stack of wood, and then you'd have to figure out how you're going to get it back to your house. And so you just leave it there, and then you would put your seal on the wood, and then everybody would know that actually belongs to someone. Lord Halifax's seal. We better have the, the Holy Spirit is the Lord himself. You belong to him. And what the seal to him. One of the best illustrations I've ever seen, the comfort that, that we're, we, we belong to him. One of the best illustrations I've ever seen, this was in an episode years ago of uh, NCSI. And there was uh, kind of an old World War II veteran who was uh, coming in, kind of, he was starting to struggle with dementia and couldn't remember certain things. And he was kind of bumbling through um, something and somehow got on a crime scene and was accused of murder. And then um, there were two kind of JAG officers, two kind of big, strong Marines who were kind of roughing him up a little bit. They were annoyed with him and uh, pushing him around. And then uh, Agent Gibbs sees something around his neck and he's like, hey, hold, hold on, hold on a second. And then he starts pulling something out from under his shirt. And what he pulls out is a Congressional Medal of Honor. And then he looks and he says, uh, you're in the presence of a Congressional Medal of Honor, men. Have some respect. And instantly the two Marines snapped to attention and gave honor where honor was due. And what struck me when I saw is that is exactly spiritually what is true of us because so often we just bumble through life and feel like I'm just like bumbling around. But the reality is if we're clothed in Christ's righteousness, we have the seal of the Holy Spirit on us and there are spiritual beings when they see, they snap to attention and show respect. You, you are the property of the King of Kings. You're owned by him. And it gives you confidence and comfort in today. But the other thing it tells you is, is that it's also the guarantee or the deposit. This is um, the down payment. This is a word that would be used for down payments when you'd be buying property. It's a word that would be used for engagement rings. When uh, someone would get engaged, in essence, you would give this, this down payment. And what he's saying is the Holy Spirit is the down payment, the promise that uh, he's going to make all things new. And what he's starting in you in little ways, he's going to complete in creation in big ways. And one of the themes of Ephesians is the steps he's taking to make all things new. And it starts in chapter 2 where he's going to make you personally new. Just as you have access to the resurrection power and just as Christ was risen from the dead, when you believe in him, you who are spiritually dead, rise and he makes you new. And then the rest of chapter 2, he makes a people new. And then in chapter 3, he gives you a new purpose for life. And then he gives you a new confidence so you can uh, uh, strongly say, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all I could ever ask or think, to him be the glory in his church now and forever. And then in chapter 4, he starts talking about how he's, he's going to make you new people in the church. He's going to make you new people in the world so you no longer walk in darkness but walk in the light. He's going to make you new people at your home so you now live in an environment where self-sacrificial love is the standard. It is the, it is the, it's the soil that this entire family then grows out of and you can experience what life was really meant to be experienced because we know there's no greater power than self-sacrificial love. There's nothing that can change you quite like that. And what he's saying is the Holy Spirit is the down payment 
the first fruits, that all of these things are going to become true of you. So as we close, it's worth thinking about, all right, how do we, how do we get this? How can we experience this? And look what he tells them. He tells them a couple things in verse uh, 13. <clears throat> it says, when you heard the word of truth, it begins by hearing. There's no faith begins by hearing, and hearing is the word of God. There has to be, before there's transformation, there has to be proclamation. You had to hear the word of truth, and then you had to believe you know, in one sense, if you want all the gifts of the gospel, you have to believe the gospel. If you want the comfort, you have to have the convictions. And this is one of the things that we don't really like because he says you have to hear the word of truth. There's a word of truth that you have to hear and respond to. I had a man in our church in Alabama who was kind of a funny old guy, and he was in the hospital one time, and I went and asked him, I said, well, how you doing? He goes, well, I'm doing fine if everything this doctor tells me ain't true. <laughs> so, well, think that might mean you're not doing fine. And that's what so often some people think, like, yeah, we're doing great as long as all this is not true. No, there's a word of truth that you then have to respond to. And then the word here, the way you respond is you believe. You believe it. And one of my favorite characters in the Bible is the man who came to Jesus with his son for healing. And Jesus says, it's possible if you believe. He's like, I believe. Help my unbelief. I want to believe. Help me believe more. And one of the gifts and the power of the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit who actually opens us up so we can believe. That's one of the greatest works that he does is he opens our eyes so we can see and our ears so we can hear. And one of the ways you know is you respond. Notice uh, three times in this passage, twice in what we read, but three times here, it has the phrase, to the praise of his glorious grace. To the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. Look at the very end in 14. All to the praise of his glory. And one of the ways you know if you believed and the Holy Spirit's opened it up is, do these things make you sing? Does it cause you to praise? Does it cause joy to well up in you? Because we do, we know there's nothing more powerful than self-sacrificial love. And when it gets, when it lands on us, it, it causes us to sing and it moves us. You know, I'm think, actually thinking about Harry Potter and to him, why the attack, it was the power of the magic of the self-sacrificial love of his dark Lord can't destroy him. And it's one of the reasons sacrificial love, and now the, 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 the dark Lord can't destroy him. And it's one of the reasons, like, when you can have 40-year-old men or 60-year-old men, they start to read that, and they don't even know why it moves them. They start tearing up because deep in their heart, they know this is true. There is no, nothing more powerful than self-sacrificial love, and when you experience it, it seals you and protects you from all of the powers of the dark lords. It can't destroy you because you're sealed and you're protected. Deep down, we know that's true, and when we experience it, what comes out is we sing to the praise of his glorious grace. And one of the things, the whole Christian life is trying to work out and work into our hearts these realities to make them real. So as we close, just a couple of things to think about. How, how can this actually help me? How can these things and these truths help me? <clears throat> One or a couple different ways is just think about what Paul says here is that he's working all things in accordance to his plan. And one of the things that can do is just help you relax. You know, if you've come in here this morning and you're um, disappointed about your past, you know, one of the things this can do is to help you relax because believe in him. 
Believe in those things that he can, he can redeem and he's going to restore all things. He's making all things new, and that starts with you, and it starts with your past. Or maybe you're discouraged about your now, and all of your hopes and your dreams and your aspirations haven't happened yet, and you thought, I thought things would be different, and I'm discouraged about my now. You can believe in him. Believe in him that he's working out a plan that's far greater than anything you can ever imagine. And one day you will sit with someone and you will look back and you will laugh and smile and think that's what he was doing then. We couldn't see it, but now we know he was making us. Just like in Psalm 119, it says, before I was afflicted, my heart went astray. But once I was afflicted, I delighted in your word. So this, whatever is coming upon me, I can trust that he's, uh, he's not against me. He's making me stronger. And then I can believe in him if you're dreading your future. You can believe in him that he's working out this grand scheme of redemption and that in the end, all will be well. So as we close, I just want to take a few minutes and pray.